Great, thanks again, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here today. If it's your first Sunday, welcome to our church. Uh, Spence said earlier, uh, we're really glad uh, you're joining us today. We are in a series right now in the book of Philemon, the short New Testament book of Philemon, which is a very short letter that some of you might be aware of. It's only 25 verses long, and so we're finishing it today. It's only been three weeks, but um, it's hopefully been a, a learnful, uh, kind of fun, quick buggy ride for you guys through, um, I, through what is actually a really important letter, kind of obscure, but a really important letter theologically in a lot of ways. We'll talk some more about that this morning. Uh, where we are going, though, next week. So if you want to turn your Bibles, I guess, first of all, to Philemon uh, 21 to 25 or a phone app you've got, feel free to do that as I'm talking here. But uh, the next six weeks after today, so we'll finish Philemon today, the next six, six weeks are going to be a sermon series called What is the Church? A uh, topical series that we will, um, we will be going through answering that question from six kind of distinct but related biblical angles. And so we'll give kind of six answers to that that, again, all kind of relate, but they're sort of unique at the same time as an opportunity to kind of just address that question. What is the church? What does it mean to be the church? Uh, Some of that came up in our Acts series, but we're going to go deeper in this uh, next series, a bit more topically. We'll bounce around scripture-wise and uh, really try to go deep here and uh, and answer the question, but apply it to, uh, to our life here as believers who call this place home, or if you don't, donors visiting, that's great too, but uh, we'll, we'll still uh, address it. Uh, but as an opportunity to, to preach the gospel, because the gospel is very closely related to the church, uh, we've seen that actually in this series, it'll come up today as well. Uh, Christ dying for the sins of the world, um, and the principle of him gathering people unto that, uh, those are very linked ideas, and the church being the body of Christ, uh, I mean literally, on, on earth, the way we see Jesus is in the words and actions of Christians. And that won't always be clean or neat. It'll be messy sometimes, but that's what the Bible says. That that's the way he's showing himself. There's many ways he does, but the primary way, other than the written words of Scripture, are in gathered Christians. And so uh, the implications are huge for us in this. So um, you can be, uh, if you would, uh, pray for that and be kind of preparing yourself to hear, uh, as I will too, uh, from what God has to say to us during that time. All right, so Philemon, let's dive into the last five chapters here. Remember what's been happening in this book? If you're just, well, remember, but if, if you're just joining us, this is the, the, kind of the three main players in the series uh, in the book. There's a lot of people named, but these are the three kind of main characters. The Apostle Paul is the first one. He's the author, now in house arrest in Rome. Philemon is the, the name uh, of the book, of course, but he is a wealthy Colossian Christian who Paul converted on one of his missionary journey trips through the region. And then Onesimus is a bondservant of Paul's, or Philemon's. Think of like just an employee in his home, in his estate who stole from him and fled to Rome, but who met Paul there, the same Paul, and was converted to Christianity himself. So uh, the story itself is just this amazing story of providence, like God's guiding, sovereign, kind of quiet but caring hand to lead people to Christians so they can hear, Jesus died for you. He rose again. He slayed death on your behalf. Believe in him, trust in him, and you will be saved. You will have hope now uh, and especially for eternal life and the life to come. So uh, that's, that's the, the main characters in the book. And then the occasion, as we've been saying and seen, is Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus, encouraging him to receive him back as a brother, to reconcile with and forgive him in the spirit of the gospel. So last week we talked about the main chunk of the letter, which was verses 8 to 20. Um, and we looked at it from two angles. One, kind of going off this occasion here, the basic importance of two Christians forgiving one another when offenses arise that will happen 
in church communities and in Christian relationships. So the principle of forgiving one another, bearing up with one another, Colossians 3 says, in the spirit of the gospel. So that means in the spirit of how Jesus forgave us greater offenses. So applying to the mind the idea that however much we're hurt in this life, we have done worse to God. We've offended God on a higher level. And so if we believe that that's true and he's erased that debt, he's forgiven us the greater offense that we've shown him, it's easier to, to apply forgiveness to others on that more person-to-person or horizontal level. So that was the first angle. The second angle was a symbolic uh, angle. So seeing symbolically how the story within the letter, so the story within the letter of Philemon, resembles all of our stories when we see ourselves as Onesimus, as, in other words, as one who has sinned against our master, God, and run away. We've been exiled from him. But then how Paul resembles Jesus in this letter, symbolically and metaphorically, how he's one who advocates for Onesimus and ultimately pays for Onesimus, pays Philemon back, so Onesimus doesn't have to pay anything back. He's just welcomed back freely as a gift. Uh, Paul suffers for he, uh, and pays for, he, but he suffers for the runaway exiled sinner Onesimus and makes a way for reconciliation by the works of his own hands, like we just, the man just sang in that song not the works of our hands. That is the gospel. And so you have it stated in this passage, but you have it symbolized as well. You have it demonstrated and portrayed. And both angles are, are crucial to see, especially the second angle, which is not the, always the obvious angle. So today what we're going to do is talk about the, these last five verses. We're going to close the letter. Uh, Paul closes the letter himself, acknowledging some of his fellow workers. He um, presents a request to prepare a guest room for him to Philemon because he wants to go see him after his house arrest ends, and then a benediction of sorts as well. This is um, an obscure but rich in theology section of Scripture. And, and I said first service too, I'll say it again, that if you're a Christian, you should have a vested interest in knowing what these types of passages mean because people will ask you. You know, it, it seems passing, kind of obscure, maybe not the main part of a letter, uh, but there are parts of the Bible that are obscure and foggy uh, and not maybe obvious. These are hard passages to teach and preach. They're hard passages to read sometimes. They're not as obvious. They're hard passages to apply. But we have a vested interest as Christians. We, we believe God wrote this. It's for our benefit. Just like the clear parts of this, the more gospel explicit parts of this are from him, so are these parts as, as well. And so we'll, uh, we'll talk through a lot of that here today. So let's dive in. Philemon 21 to 25, a short five verses today. Then we'll come back and, and pick it apart. All right, verse 21. Paul says to Philemon, confident of your obedience. So pause there for one second. He's saying, I'm confident that you will do what I'm asking. I'm confident that you'll receive back Onesimus with grace, that you'll be wronged for the sake of the gospel, that you'll love him, that you'll treat him like a brother, um, and that you'll reconcile with him. So Paul's saying, confidence of that, verse 21, I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. At the same time, Prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings. And so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. And so ends the letter. All right, let's start with this question, which is a little bit more of an explanation. The question of who are these people that Paul mentions here? that some of which come up elsewhere in other, others of his letters in the book of Acts. Let's read through this really quick. Epaphras 
was another Colossian Christian. This is where Philemon's house church is, in, in the city of Colossae in Asian Minor. So Epaphras is another Colossian Christian that God used to help Paul plant that first church. Colossians 1.7 talks about this. Now he's apparently in, in Rome in prison as well. We don't know why, but he's there as a fellow prisoner, uh, Paul says. Mark is a close associate to the apostle Peter, uh, an early traveling partner of Paul and Barnabas. Acts 12 talks about this, and uh, he was the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Aristarchus was a Macedonian convert to Christianity who became a traveling companion to Paul and is also mentioned in Acts and Colossians. Demas uh, is another friend of Paul's we know little about, but we do know later in his life he left Paul, and this is from 2 Timothy 4, I'll, I'll mention this later, but he, quote, fell in love with the world, and he presumably left the faith entirely. So he's an apostate, or not at this point, but he will be. And then Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and also a cro another close traveling partner to Paul throughout much of his missionary journeys, and now in Rome when he's in house arrest. Luke is a Gentile convert, a non-Jewish convert to the faith, one of the early ones, and a, a good friend of Paul's. All right? So here are three, what I'll call, uh, theological and ministerial lessons. When we look at these li uh, name lists in the Bible, and there are many, uh, you could apply it to genealogies maybe as well, on a, maybe a little bit different level. Some of these apply to that, others maybe not quite as much. But when Paul lists out names of specific Christians who actually lived, he names them, writes them down. He loves them, he encourages them, he wants to see them. Uh, what do we learn? Why are, why are these passages here? Why doesn't the letter just kind of end with something a little bit more straightforwardly theological? I mean, one answer to that is these are actual letters. These are actually written in history to actual people like us. And so that's the first one, is when you see names like this, name lists like this, what we're talking about are real people with real names. They had real lives like us, real stories, real conversion stories, real pasts. Um, they're from real cities. Colossae is a real historical city, Rome a real city, uh, all under the banner of this being a real historical and theological gospel or good news of Jesus Christ rising from the dead that's being pronounced and benefiting sinners. And so it's under the banner of a real Jesus Christ, uh, not a, a theory or a metaphor or an idea or an invention, but an actual Christ who really lived. And so, in other words, to say it differently, this isn't that different from us. I mean, you could have put our names in here, put some of our names in this list, right? And put Minneapolis in the list and it would mean the same thing in a lot of ways. And so obvious statement here, but easy to miss. Names are included in the Bible because we have names. And this reminds us that God sees us as well and he knows our names. And, and this is the key. He also, like he's writing, remember God's ultimate author here, like he's writing down names through the pen of Paul, like Epaphras and Mark and, and Demas and Luke. He, he desires to do that just like he desires to write our names down as well. So when we look at Philemon, our names are not in that book, obviously, like our actual names, but our names as Christians are written down in, in a different book of the Bible. You guys remember what that book is? It's not a named book of the Bible, but it's in the Bible. And the name of that book is a really important book to know and to understand, and that is the Lamb's Book of Life. It comes up in many places in the, in the New Testament, but our names, if you're a Christian, our names are written in it right now. It actually exists. 
in heaven with Jesus. It's there. It's a book. And our names are written in it because we believed the gospel. Uh, Revelation 3.5 talks about it. Revelation 20. I'll read the bottom one. uh, where, Where it says there, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's or Jesus's. Jesus is the Lamb of God because it's a sacrificial idea. So the Lamb's book of life, only those whose names are written there will enter heaven or the new earth, the new creation, the heavenly city which comes down from heaven and will be here on this earth when it's purified in the future and Jesus with it. All right, so the the big idea behind the book is to understand that, again, though it's obvious, it's super easy to miss this, within the book, within the Lamb's book of life, are names, not deeds. And there are books of works and deeds that Revelation talks about that will be opened in the end. Everything people have done, have done and thought throughout all of their lives and all of history. But judgment based on those books doesn't end well for people, wouldn't end well for us. Another book is open. This is where the gospel comes in. When this book is opened and names are read, not what we've done, but simply the names of people who have professed faith in Christ, It is those who are brought in, those who are entering the city, those who have a place in the new earth, those who are finally saved. So it's good news that names are there, in other words, and not works or not deeds because no one has done enough. No one has turned the head of God with what they've done or said. It's not by works we're saved, but simply by faith. And so that's where names come in here and underscore that idea. And so, it, lots to say about this, but it, it, we get a whisper of this here, and at the end of the day, just understand that God knows us, he sees us, he writes our names down, this is what he does, not in a vengeful kind of way, but like a father writing his kids into his will in love, or like a father writing uh, his kids' names down as a part of a love letter, or like... Um, Jesse Splann was talking about this in, in between services, and I thought this was helpful. It's kind of like a parent, uh, like a husband and a wife, writing names down when they're choosing to name their child. And they select a name, and they write it out to see what it'll look like. And they love the name because it's going to be the name of their son or the, name, or the name of their daughter. And the name is written down before the child's born. Just like in Revelation 13, which I don't have on screen here, it says that our names were written in the book of life before we were born. Because it's by grace we're saved. It's by grace we're chosen. It's by grace we are allotted a place in the new earth. Simply by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not by religious performance. This is the entire biblical storyline. Uh, underscores this idea. As does the nature of the two kinds of books. It's the book of, name, book of names. The Lamb's book of life that matters in the end. And so like these names here in Philemon have never been erased from Philemon. As, as we see here in Revelation 3 so will our names never be erased from Jesus' book of life. And the reason why they won't be erased is because it's not written in there based on your performance or how well you believe or what you've done or thought or said. It's not based on you. If it was, they could be erased because we have, to put it mildly, bad days as Christians, full of sin and full of doubts. But they're not erased because they're written in with the blood of Christ itself. They're written in with what God paid to get us there will never, ever, ever be erased. Once we're saved, we're, we are always, always saved. All right, with that said, let's talk about the second piece, which is the cautionary tale of Demas. From 2 Timothy 4.10, this is uh, written after Philemon, uh, but it says here that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. This is the same author, Paul. So here in Philemon, in other words, these are the two places Demas comes up. 
Here in Philemon, he appears to be a Christian, very involved in Christian ministry, a close friend of Paul and other believers, but later he is uh, he's not. He, he just left Paul. He left the faith. He, he left Christian community and a completely, uh, what we call in theology, apostatized, or uh, he uh, made a, a full kind of stand against the faith, full-on rebellion away from it, uh, never to return. And so it's kind of like then, because there's two aspects, or there's two Demas passages in the Bible, it's kind of like today if we've had, you know, two pictures. If we had a photograph of maybe a, a friend uh, who was like with us in a, in a group setting in college, studying the Bible, excited about his or her faith, seemingly so alive in Christ, and then um, later, like maybe years later, maybe decades later, um, seeing a picture of them, maybe on social media or something, where they un- unashamedly with their post um, declare their disillusionment with Christianity and boast about their love for the things of the world at the expense of their love for Christ and the church. Um, and I've had this experience actually recently. Uh, no one you guys know. This is a college friend um, that I actually shared the gospel with. And I mean like alongside to someone else. Like I heard him evangelize someone else. I, 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 um, I, I, was, I was close with him. And uh, recently he actually podcasted about it. it, it I mean, it's actually, this is one of the saddest things. Uh, if you haven't experienced this, you probably will. Um, someone close to you that, that you knew that you thought was Christian, but by their, by their lack of perseverance showed that they were posing. They were faking it. Um, they, did, they, they didn't, by their fruit, show that they actually believed the gospel in the beginning. It was, and it's easy to do. Uh, it, and, and this is the, the warning. We could talk all day about this. This is not a sermon on Demas, but it is important to see because he only comes up a couple of times in the Bible, and this is for, it's for this reason. It's a cautionary tale. It's a warning to Christians to finish the course. Uh, many start, but not all finish. That, that's just the simple truth. Many start, but not all finish. And by their lack of finishing, show that they never really started in the first place. And so, uh, some of us then in the room um, might be Demases, or no Demases, or, um, you know, maybe think about it this way. Like, in 10 years, how do we know we'll be thriving in a local church, like, deeply in love with Jesus, knowing intimate, known intimately, and knowing intimately other Christians, knowing the gospel better every day. And like the Bible talks about growing, maturing. How do we know that's going to be the case? How do you know? And one huge answer to that is you know because God will help you persevere if you've truly believed. Secondarily, you know because if you're in a church, that will, that will help ensure your perseverance. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that Demas is leaving Paul and leaving the faith at the same time. That, that is to say, when Christians leave the church and leave Christian community, it's very commonly associated with leaving Christianity altogether. That's a big uh, topic for our church series. Um, it, it came up two weeks ago, too, in Philemon. But the church, in a lot of ways, is Christ because we are the body of Christ. He is spiritually in us, like mystically, when we gather. And so to leave the church is, like Demas, to leave Paul is really to leave Christ. And he fell in love with the world, and the rest is a very sad, tragic uh, tale. All right, uh, third though, a little more of a non-Debbie Downer note here, um, is Paul's teamwork with and love for Christians. Again, it's a whole sermon, but just a couple of words on this. We see that Paul just wants to be with Christians. When he names out Christians, this is in love. He, he says, prepare a guest room for me. I want to see you. I want my house arrest to end. I want to eat with you and laugh with you. 
And in Romans 1, he, he talks about, um, I, I, I long to see you. I, I want to see the Roman church. I, I want to know them. I, wanna, I want to, I love this phrase, be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That's a wonderful depiction of what happens when Christians love each other and get together is we're built up by sharing stories and praying for each other and building the gospel into each other's lives in big and small ways. So he loves Christians, but you get the sense that Paul like, like likes Christians too. Not just loves, but like he likes them. And he wants to be, to be around them. So, so two angles to this. One is just simply the question, is this something we're like working at? Because this isn't, um, this is a great example to follow. Uh, it, Paul was a guy like us, a sinner like us who was saved, who liked Christians. Do we have that way about us? Or do we just kind of attend church and don't, don't know people? So I think there's something here to say, you know, um, loving Christians well, and this is happening by God's grace here on very high levels. Praise God. That's from him, not us. And yet, we can strive to um, emulate this, I think, even more. Um, but on the flip side, there's also grace, grace to us in this as well. And that, remember, in this letter and everywhere in Paul's letters, in the book of Acts, Paul resembles Jesus, as do other Christians in this letter and other letters, as do we to each other in this very room, because we're full of the Holy Spirit, right? And so when we apply that way of thinking to Paul's affection, then we're not just seeing a Christian man's affection for other Christians, we're actually seeing a whisper of Jesus' affection for us. See, then it's dialed up, because then that means that Jesus wants to be with us. He wants to end the exile. He wants to see us face to face, maybe, probably, very likely, more than we want to see his, which is amazing news, more on that later. But, and of course, we know this is the gospel, that he was willing to pay it all, his own life, to end this separation. And, and that leads me to this next section, with these three kind of, in one sense, asides, but in one sense, like theological lessons from the name lists, we start to see in Paul his affection isn't just the affection of a man. It's the affection of God. And that sets the stage for all kinds of um, amazing things here. So let's uh, dive into this next piece then, which is um, verse 22. Let me read that again. Paul says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. This is a um, not completely unique thing Paul says in his letters, but in, in some ways this is like the way he writes it in Philemon, it's unique. But he, the, the way he talks here about being graciously given is a unique to Philemon statement. Lots of theology here on multiple levels, and so we'll talk about a couple of those um, today. But going off what I was just saying, and here's to connect the dots. When we see Paul end this letter with a wish for a union with other believers... That is, house arrest in Rome would end. Um, on one level, that's, that's just what we're seeing, right? Like on, on face value level, we're seeing Paul want to see other Christians. And, um, and we can draw theology or pra practicality from that, right? Um, in this hope, there's a whisper of every Christian's longing. Like we might look at that and say, yes, I too want a reunion with long lost Christian friendships or people I, that moved to, you know, uh, some international place. I haven't seen them in 10 years or we just kind of lost touch and I, I long to see them. Or maybe with deceased Christians, like I can't wait for Jesus to return when bodies are raised from the earth and glorified and remade and I can see 
loved Christian family and loved Christian family, church family, again, forever, never to be separated by death again. So on one level, we can, we can and should read our longings and our story into Paul and say, look, that's normal, and it's good to actually yearn for that because wrapped up in that is a hope of the resurrection. At the same time, it's more than that. Because wrapped up within this like longing and hope is a whisper of every Christian's true divine longing, which is a longing for true and final reunion with Jesus. Even though he's here, there's no more separation, we can't see him. And so the phrase then, when I read it this way, the phrase, prepare a guest room for me, is intentionally reminiscent of John 14, 1-3. This is a teaching that Jesus gave on um, Mount of Olives right before his death in John 14. Let me read it. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. All right, such good, encouraging, rich gospel theology in this. We'll look at a couple things here. There's so much we could actually look at. A few things that I I won't spin off on for time's sake today, but um, still want to briefly comment on is, you know, we could talk about here how clearly, in terms of how it begins, we could talk about how Jesus intends to comfort us with this reality. Like, he's speaking to troubled people, deeply troubled people when he says this. And look at what he's encouraging with. He's, he's consoling with this theology. So have that in mind. If you're troubled or if you're not troubled, if you're suffering, if you're dying, I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff we need to console our minds and bodies with, right? This kind of theology, all right? So we, we could talk about that. We could talk about how Jesus is like a servant and a host in this passage and how crazy that is. We could talk about how there is a... New temple theology here. That's another kind of bunny trail. Or how we see a glaring absence of law or precondition to this type of hospitality. In other words, how there's no, if you do this, then this will be true. Or if you live this way, then this will be true. If you think this or stop doing this, then this will be true. Nothing like that. We could talk about that. Or we could talk about how Christianity is the antithesis of pilgrimage theology. In other words, how other religions and misguided Christians alike throughout history and today have felt the impulse and the necessity to pilgrimage to holy cities. But that Christianity is altogether different and that it centers on how Jesus has traveled to us, as this says, pilgrimaged to us to save us and and how he is like our holy city, the Bible says. He is the place of God. There is no holy city on earth apart from Christ. And if anything, it's the church, not the building, but the gathered people of God who are called the new Jerusalem and the the new city. But again, that's another another thing. But this idea of Christ doing the heavy lifting and the pilgrimaging, as it relates to Philemon, is what I want to park on for a few minutes here today and talk about. So, So back to Philemon here in 22, when Paul says, prepare a room for me, he's relying on another person to do this, right? He's depending on the hospitality of another. 
He's playing a passive role here. So here, Philemon becomes the Christ figure. Not Paul anymore. Paul's more like us. Philemon is in the role of, of Christ here in a way. And so it is the same then between us and Christ. It's, it's, it is, um, if you think about this characteristic of God, um, some of you maybe never have before, it's almost unfathomable to, to think and to know that the Christian God, the creator of the universe, plays the part of a servant here. He plays the part of an innkeeper. He plays the part of a host to us, looking out for our benefit, serving us, helping us, granting us comfort and consolation and food. But this is the gospel, right? So in another sense, if we know the gospel, this shouldn't be shocking. Remember how he washed Peter's feet before he died in the exchange that he had with Peter? We also see it here in 22 in this phrase, I hope that I will be graciously given to you. That, that is a, a wonderfully theologically loaded phrase that's kind of weird if you think about it. Uh, three are prayers, I hope that I will be graciously given to you. I, in other words, I will be given. So language is important here. Linguistics are important. I will be given is the passive form of the verb, Right? He's not giving himself. He's not traveling himself. He's not overcoming separation himself. He's being given by somebody else. So who is that someone? Has to be God, right? It's not stated, but we know that he says here, I hope that through your prayers I will be given. So I hope that, that through your prayers for me, God will answer the prayer by being the agent of bringing me to you. That God will be the ender of exile and, and separation, essentially. And that, again, is the gospel, right? This is where language becomes important when you read the Bible, is what form of the verb is being used? And to see it's passive, but then to also say it's not active, which is the same thing, right? But to say, what doesn't it say? It doesn't say that I will give myself to you, I will do the giving. It says, I will be given, this is the gospel. We are in the passive verb. We have this hope that through Jesus and our prayers for help from our sin, our prayers for help from being separated from God, our prayers for longing to see Jesus' face, our prayers for fear of death, our prayers for fear of hell, our prayers for addiction to sin, our prayers for all of that and more, anxieties, depressions, shame, guilt. Our prayers for help from all of those, it is our hope that we will still be given to God. Not by ourselves, not by the works of our hands, but as Jesus says here in John 14, I will, I will prepare the place, then I'll come and get you, then I'll bring you back forever. It's like, what are we doing in this passage for crying out loud? Nothing! It's like hard for type A types, right? Where you're like, come on, give me something. There's nothing, nothing, except to believe it's true. That's it. Believe it's true. And cling to it like, like nothing else, like you never have in your life. Cling to it. That's what faith means. It's trust. In fact, Jesus doubles down on this idea few chapters earlier. 
when he says in John 6, no one can come to me unless God the Father who sent me draws them. All right, again, a lot here. This might, that might sound odd. That might sound unfair. Um, common questions that come up to passages like this are like, um, well, where's our choice in that? Don't we have a choice? Or maybe a question would be, well, does that mean that God does not draw some people to himself? Because not all are saved. And if the only way to get to Jesus is if God draws us or, or pushes us or causes us or works in our heart, like, then how do we handle disbelief? Seems unfair. All right, those are great questions. I'm not going to answer any of those. <laughs> That's, sorry, I just realized I should probably maybe answer one. I don't think I'm, I'm going to, though. Um, but I do want to say this. Um, if you really think about it, do we really want it any other way than this? Do you really want it to be something else than this? Why? What, with, what within you wants it to be different? So read it again. Think about this. Do we want it to be true that it's possible to come to Jesus and be saved without the Father drawing us? Do you want that to be true? See, if it's true, it would mean a couple of things. Probably a whole slew of hellish realities, actually, but a couple of big things. One, it would mean that God is leaving it up to us or maybe to chance and two, it would mean that our hope would be placed more on the purity and sincerity of our past profession of faith instead of the Spirit of God drawing us to himself now through that profession or aside from it. Which do we want? Where do you want to put your hope? In the purity and sincerity of a past profession of faith, the words you used, how well you prayed that prayer, how much trust you feel in your heart, or behind the curtains of that, a God who draws you to himself in spite of yourself, who does not leave things to chance because he loves you too much. See, if it's, if it's the, the former thing here, if it is leaving it up to chance, if it is putting our hope in ourselves, that is, like, in a word, terrifying. This is where, like, fear-based theology comes from, and it doesn't fit because Jesus says, don't fear. Perfect love drives out fear. One of the most common things the angels say, right, in association with Jesus' birth and his resurrection, Jesus himself says this on repeat, don't fear. The problem then with the, the antithesis to this theology is it leads to fear. You'll always constantly be asking yourself, did I do it right? Have I done enough? Did I have enough sincerity, purity in my, in my profession? Did I come to God enough? Am I actually with him? Instead, what we're left with is much better news. Jesus essentially says here, and I'm going to put two words in front of this to help you see what he means. The two words are, don't worry. What Jesus essentially means here is, don't worry, guys. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. So that means you don't have to continue trusting in yourselves anymore. You don't have to do that. He's given us permission to stop trusting in ourselves. So he's like, don't worry. You don't have to do it. Isn't that great news? It should be. 
You don't have to trust in yourselves anymore, and you don't have to be afraid. You just have to believe in me. I prepare the room. I pilgrimage to you. I come to get you. I bring you to my Father. No preconditions. I suffer to make all of that possible. So that's why Paul here, I think, is closing, as he always does with these words, final words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul closes with a wish of grace upon the church. And that, to be clear, doesn't mean happiness or comfort. Those, those, Those can be byproducts maybe of grace in our lives sometimes. But Paul's not saying, hope you have a good day, grace. You know, like that's not what the grace word means. Grace is much more expansive. It's much more God-centered. It means undeserved merit. It means we don't deserve this. We're we're being shown shown favor even though we're unfavorable people. We're unfavorable. We're enemies, but we're being shown favor. Think of like the worst enemy of somebody being loved by that person unto this person's death. Like that's what grace is. Like this person killed this person's wife and this person somehow forgives this person and dies for that person. Like, what the heck is going on, right? That's what grace is. It's much more expansive and it's summative of what this whole letter has been about. Here's a quick buggy ride to the last three sermons if you weren't here especially for this. Everything in this letter is about the gospel. The first sermon we talked about joy and refreshment and seeing love in the church. The second sermon was about seeing our story in Onesimus and how Paul advocated for him and offered to pay his debt in full, confirming it with his own hands and writing. And then today, the idea of even preparing a guest room for me whispers the gospel too. All of those things on the left find their finish line and fulfillment in the gospel. This is, this is so important to see in our understanding of biblical interpretation that even the obscure finds its goal in Christ. Even seeing the the principle of being refreshed by Christian's love finds its fulfillment in being refreshed by the better love that God shows us through his son when he died for our sins. The second one's more obvious. The third one we've been talking about. So again, whether it's stated or sensed or shown that this is what Paul wants. He wants this type of grace to be to fall like a gentle blanket over their whole body in church and just be encompassed in, in, this, in this idea. And like Paul to Philemon, um, <clears throat> 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you will do even more than I say. Here's what this means theologically. Like Paul to Philemon, so can we be confident of Jesus' gracious response to us and his obedience unto death. And for his love to even go beyond what we ask. It's similar to this idea in Ephesians 3, speaking of Jesus, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. If you're a Christian, this is what God is like. Isn't that amazing? If you're not a Christian, this is what God is like, the Christian God. Isn't that amazing? 
that on our, on our best days of understanding how loving God is to us, what he spent, he spent his own blood, he spent his son, son's life to get us back. On our best days of understanding that and weeping in joy in church over that idea, our best days, we still don't understand it enough. It's still too small. Our understanding of it, still too small. And it will always be too small because God is always too big and much better than what we think. And so it's very assuring for us, isn't it? That whatever you think about the love of God, that the speck of your faith, the speck of what you understand, it might be good, but it's not like, it's not enough. It's, it's never going to be big, big enough because you're always able to do more, far more abundantly than whatever we ask or think. And what Paul said to Philemon here is a whisper of that. Because Philemon is in the place of Christ in this book. God always loves us more. Jesus always advocates more, always pays more, always is willing to fight our battles more, always is willing to prepare a greater room. So the the call on Philemon here is be confident of Jesus' obedience unto the cross for you. That's what I want to leave us with in um, every sermon we have. But this is what I think Philemon means. And we see it, this exchange between these two men. Be confident of Jesus' obedience unto the cross for you. As Paul's confident of Philemon's obedience, who's greater than him? Jesus. Be confident of Christ's obedience that was obedient to the Father when the Father said, I want you to go this is, this is how he schemed for our salvation. Go and suffer and die for my people. And Christ obeyed. That last song the band did was a, a beautiful um, portrayal of that. that, that be confident of Jesus' obedience unto the cross for you and believe that he has done and will do even more for you than what you currently hold in your heart and mind. His love for you is greater than your love for him. His grace is greater than your sin. I mean, this little obscure book in the Bible wants to teach us this. This is what it's about. Not simply for us to obey Christ's command to love other Christians, though we talked about that, but what we'd ultimately have is confidence not in ourselves, not in the works of our hands, but in Christ. That he be the active verb, we be the passive verb. That, that, he, that we would be the recipient of the room, but Christ would be the preparer of the room of salvation through his gruesome, bloody death and his glorious death-destroying resurrection. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us to believe this truth. Help us to believe this gospel all our days, not sort of partially in a fake kind of way like Demas, but in a way that the other Christians did, uh, like, like we are in this room, uh, many of us, maybe all of us. But God, help us to believe the gospel and to cling like a life preserver to it like a life preserver in the middle of the ocean of sin. We need, need, need you. Help us to worship uh, God in response to your, uh, to your gospel through communion today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.